Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, swinging by and checking out TLC Presents Toddversations. I got to tell you, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. I'm as jacked up as a spider monkey on Mountain Dew for my guests that I have today. Folks, I have the incredible, the unbelievable, the world-renowned Kathleen Merrigan with me today. Kathleen, welcome so very much to being here today with us. I am honored to have you. Thank you. I'm ready for a Toddversation. Very cool. Thank you. That fires us up. Just so everybody knows, I'm going to get a little fanboy moment right here, just because, you know, I mean, you've had uh, an amazing career. There's no two ways about it. So let's just kind of backpedal a touch and tell everybody what you've been up to. So you are the deputy secretary and CEO of the United States Department of Agriculture. Just a small job. That was probably part time. Probably got that through some placement service, I'm guessing. Right. So that was kind of, a you know, whatever there. Uh, time magazine, 100 most influential people on the planet. Another small little accolade to throw your way. And now today, you're the executive director at the Sweetie Center for Sustainable Food Systems at Arizona State University. Hence the background all the way around. Little love on my screen for the Sweetie Center. Little love for Sparky the Sun Devil on my screen as well. And as in your background, I love. So again, welcome from the bottom of my heart. I am thrilled to be chatting with you today. Well, thank you. Yeah, so my background is simply a photograph I took on a hike in my local area here in Phoenix, Arizona. Love it. I love the desert. Phoenix is a beautiful spot by far. It really is. It's a great spot. So I want to dive in. I got a lot of questions. You've done so many amazing things. And I, I, you know, the bulk of what I'd like to talk about today and we'll kind of come around to it is, is obviously the, the recommendations you sent to the president of the United States, which I just thought was just killer. The work that you guys did, your team coming out of the Sweetie Center like you've done, I mean, it's just amazing. And so I want to get into that and talk about a few of those things. But beforehand, I thought maybe it'd be great if you could just share a little bit about yourself and the work that you're doing at the Sweetie Center, because I think it's so important. So I spent a lot of my energies educating the next generation of food policy leaders. And part of my goal is to bring new people to the decision-making tables that better represent the demographics of this country. Uh, because otherwise I don't think things radically change and they need right. to change. So we have a bachelor's degree um, in sustainable food systems, a master's degree in sustainable food systems, and a graduate certificate in food policy and sustainability leadership. So I spend a lot of my time in the classroom, whether it's on the ground in person or virtual, we have both kinds. Um, but we have a lot of research underway. We're really interested in the power of deliciousness and by that, I mean, people will change their behaviors because of personal health or planetary needs, but some people are just gonna do it because it tastes darn good. So how yeah. do we harness the power of deliciousness? We're looking at true cost accounting. How do we um, really put price tags on the externalities of food production so that there's a real transparency for decision makers and ways for, we, for all of us to hold those decision makers accountable for their choices? Um, we're looking at organic, which is the topic of our discussion here. We're really interested in what's going on in the ag tech sector and trying to help um, progressive industry efforts to come to fruition. And we're also very interested in indigenous foodways. Um, I'm in the state of Arizona where uh, nearly 59% of our producers are Native American, um, that looms large in the life I live here in my new home state. And so what can we learn from Native producers and how can we empower them in our food system work? 
I love it. I mean, you you epitomize what I preach all the time, which is getting the conversation started about the positive cost of food. And if we don't start to have these, you know, food is a drug. It can help and it can hurt us all at the same time if we're not careful. And um, I think it's so important that we start to elevate these conversations because we cannot continue to drive costs out of food if we want to have a healthy planet and a healthy society. There's things that we need to talk about that are relevant. Labor, for instance, is a positive cost of food. Um, and I think it's just the, the work that you're doing and what you've already shared is just right up my alley. Again, that's why I'm fired up. I told you, I don't even need a Mountain Dew today, but I feel like I've drank a gallon of it, whatever that feels like. I've never had a Mountain Dew, so I really don't know, but what the hell, it doesn't matter. You know, having your career like you've had and doing what you've done to come to this spot, it's got to be pretty exciting for you to give back. Um, it's got to be pretty exciting for you to, to take your experiences and, and to to um, propel them forward. You know, that wisdom is a big thing, right? It, it, as we get older, our wisdom, our teaching, our mentoring, things like that are super important. So inside of the institute, you know, what you guys are doing at the center, how has it been received from the kids so far? I mean, I, I would think that it's got to be a program that you've got a waiting list to, to kind of join, if I was guessing. Well, we do have an admissions process and not everyone gets in, but um, most people do. And one of my big commitments is to raise scholarship funding so that nobody is prevented at the graduate level, undergrads right. are different. At the graduate level, nobody is prohibited from joining our program because of financial concerns. Awesome. Everyone has to pay a little bit. I believe in skin in the game, but sure. uh, nobody is uh, climbing a mountain they're unable to climb. Uh, yeah, it's popular, it's necessary, and I'm also aided by uh, a new team of senior fellows, people who are like myself, I suppose, long in the tooth and ready to download what they've learned over the course of their career uh, to help the next-gen leaders. So people like Ricardo Salvador from Union of Concerned Scientists, Bob Nash, who's in Arkansas and at one time was the head of White House personnel for President Clinton and Undersecretary for Rural Development at USDA. Pam Marone, an incredible STEM leader, woman um, uh, who has really pioneered all kinds of things in biocontrols. Um, Alexander yeah. Mueller uh, in Germany, who was at one time the Minister of Environment there. The list goes on. We have seven or eight senior fellows who are at the point in their career where uh, retirement looms. I'm not going to put a date on myself or any of these people, but really seeing the urgency to upload what they know um, across an expanse of young people with energy and passion to make change. I love it. I mean, it's just so, it's so what we need. It's these conversations so need to just continue to keep, you know, elevating uh, because it's how we're going to move the ball down the field properly. And we're going to make the changes that we need. You know, I, I say it all the time. I say, sometimes we make decisions for the now and not for the tomorrow. And I think we're seeing a lot of those now decisions affecting our tomorrow. And we've got to make us change to that. I'd like to talk a little bit um, about what you sent to the president of the United States and the recommendations that you guys came up with, basically your organic to-do list. Um, there's a list of 46 of them. We're not gonna do all of them at this time. And, and I encourage everybody to go check it out. I encourage everybody to read through them because I don't think there's anything on there that you can't, I think, first of all, I think you're gonna find things on there shock you, which I'm gonna talk a couple of those today. I think you're gonna find some things that are gonna make you go, 
oh, I never even thought about that. Um, and But I think there's every one of them is going to make you open up your eyes and go, wow, getting involved is not a bad thing. So if you wouldn't mind, can you tell me a little bit why you did it? I mean, you know, it's a big move sending a big letter like this to the president, not the average Joe's going to, oh, I made a joke. The average Joe's going to do that. Um, so tell me kind of the, the, the impetus for doing it and why you guys did it. Then I want to throw a couple at you and talk about them a little bit more detail. Sure. So what people should know is that the Sweetie Center has partnered with Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, and Californians for Pesticide Reform in developing what we were planning on being an opus report on the state of science in organic agriculture. And it has just been a very lengthy process and knowing that time was not on our side and wanting to be considered in the transition with the new administration, we broke out the policy recommendations from the larger report. This larger report we expect will come out late in the calendar year of 2021. Um, so why this report? Uh, well, because uh, when you have new leadership, everyone's trying to make their mark. We chose 46 recommendations because wink, wink, Joe Biden is the 46th president of the United States. It's not that I couldn't double the number of recommendations. Easily. Easily. Um, we say very clear at the start of the report, there's not a hierarchy um, mm -hmm. across the 46. One is not important, more important than number 46. But what I did do in terms of a strategic decision in comprising this list is that I look for things for the most part that the Biden administration could do within existing statutory authority and existing budgets. And this was really the same strategy I deployed with the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food initiative I led when I was deputy secretary during the first term of Obama. Again, existing statutory authority, existing budgets that are there, work with what you have. And so most of these things uh, the Biden-Harris administration could do as if uh, it was a switch of, uh, you know, the light switch, as I say. Right. So um, we're really hoping that they uh, take on the bulk of these recommendations. That's not to say there aren't more creative and bigger ideas that could be put forward for the 2023 Farm Bill, for example, that could even be encompassed in battles over the future of infrastructure, but again, we were just really focused on what's really doable. Right. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. And and, and I'm going to get back into it. But Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food initiative was amazing because I think for the first time, there was a little bit of a groundswell of people like, oh, it just doesn't show up in my grocery store. There's more to it. People started to gravitate towards that. I thought was brilliant myself. I just I loved it because the fact it was just such a great I think wake up call for people to recognize the importance of thinking that thing through. So I'm going to ask you about that a little bit more in detail, but I want to keep going down the list of 46. So it's interesting to me that, you know, 82% um, of the people now in this country buy organics on, uh, on a regular basis and organic food somewhat, somehow on a regular basis. Um, sales today in the organic sector, um, 60 what, 62 billion now is, is the number we're approaching. And it's unbelievable to see that that number has gone from back in my day. I don't even think anybody knew there was a B, you know, it was just an M back then, you know, which was really great. 
But farmers are aging. Um, the next generation of farmers aren't necessarily coming at, our, at the same pace as I think as, as the aging process is. And that's a challenge. So talk to us a little bit about a whole of government approach um, in, in, in what you published. This episode of Todd Versations is brought to you by Vitalis Organic Seeds. Organic seed for organic food. Learn more about their commitment to organic seed production and R&D at usa.vitalisorganic.com. Well, I think we think of organic in the government as being the National Organic Program at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. I wanted to think about it as all of USDA's 17 agencies. And then I also want to say it's not just USDA. What if VA hospitals procured organic food for veterans that they're serving? What if the Department of Labor's job core training centers focus on organic agriculture? What if the the transportation department uh, really thought about um, railway access and the need for uh, identity preserved products and making it, it from here to there. I mean, I could go through uh, probably the whole alphabet soup of the federal government and you would have no listeners by the end of the time we have together. But I do see that there is a need to get full federal engagement on organic. The um, European Union's farm to fork strategy Mm-hmm. that has been enacted um, by, by the p- powers that be over there, calls for an increase in organic acreage in the EU countries, which is now collectively about 8% to 25% by the year 2030, the time our sustainable development goals are supposed to be reached. Uh, why can't we have a similar plan that would require all government agencies putting their shoulder to the boulder. Yeah, I agree. When you talked about purchasing too, and I think that's a big issue, like, you know, purchasing organic food as a government. I mean, we, the government buys so much stuff, but I know, and I don't know, I don't believe and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe they're very deep or in depth at all right now, as far as looking at organic supplies to bring into any kind of programs, which I think is unfortunate. Yeah. So I've been um, twice at USDA once during President Clinton's term at the tail end the last couple of years as the administrator of the Agricultural Marketing Service, and then as deputy secretary for President Obama, as you noted. And in both jobs, I was procuring large amounts of food to put into our school food programs for meals ready to eat, um, helping figure that out, um, uh, different nutrition assistance programs. And we don't buy organic, the government doesn't buy organic. And the argument essentially is, well, organic costs more. Organic food oftentimes is sold at a premium. And that's true. Mm -hmm. But um, the reality is most of the food that the federal government procures is being purchased at a price higher than the market would yield. Because oftentimes these purchases are happening because there's a surplus. So there's an overproduction of peaches in California. So the peach industry comes to Washington and says, could you please buy our peaches um, for putting into some sort of fruit cup or whatever to serve kids in schools? So by the government doing that, we keep the price elevated. So the market, uh, the the farmers are, are, are whole. 
So the idea of this argument against buying organic doesn't hold up in my mind. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I just don't think that it does. But I also think that, you know, it goes back to my original argument, talking about the positive cost of food. What, what is our benefit by putting more organic food into the school system? What is, what is happening, um, you know, from a health perspective? All these other things that, you know, I want to start getting more and more conversation around. So I appreciate that answer. And I, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. I don't see a reason why we can't. Um, because these are farmers, too. They have the same, you know, they wake up with the same cloud over their farm as every other farmer has a cloud and they wake up with the same struggles, you know, and they're willing to take a risk because they believe in something greater. And I don't think in a lot of ways we support them. And I know there's going to, one area of our, the 46 I want to get into that I can't wait for people to kind of, I think it baffled by. You talked about the different agencies um, and there's nine or so of the 17 agencies that you guys pointed out in the report um, that are working with organics, but there's still a big gap between there um, with these programs. So when you talk about that, there's a couple of agencies that you brought up, which is the food and nutrition services and the rural development. Can you touch on that a little bit about how you're feeling about dragging more just of the USDA itself into the, into the thought process? Well, I'd really like USDA rural development to recognize the economic advantages of organic. There's great research by Ted Janicki out of um, uh, Penn State, former colleague of mine years ago, where he's done research where he's identified organic hotspots. And that's counties with a lot of organic activity next to other counties with significant organic um, okay. activities. And he finds a lot of the economic indicators of those counties are very, very positive. So right. what we can learn from that is that investments in organic can be very great for economic development. And so rural development is a whole slew of loan and grant programs that could be deployed to help build the organic sector, particularly directing it to areas where there has been, you know, serious economic challenges, uh, communities that have been bypassed. We're in this big national discussion about racial justice and social equity and overlooked communities. Organic can help be a salve for that if we deploy federal resources strategically. Mm -hmm. Rural development can do that. In terms of the food and nutrition service, they, for a lot of those reasons about price, have uh, avoided procuring, um, well, they are not the actual procurement agency, but they're involved right. in it. Uh, uh, be, um, be promoting organic, but they're also the educators of American citizens on, on food choices. So the dietary guidelines for Americans, for example, uh, is completely uh, voiceless when it comes to production methods and, and organic production in particular. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Well, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly, which leads me into, into my next uh, one of the 46 that's up there, which is really talking about educating a consumer on the health benefits of organics. And, you know, health is, is really one of the number one reasons that drives folks to purchase organic items or to at least consider and to look at them for sure. I find it interesting that we have, we're using almost a billion pounds of pesticides applied to crops here in the United States. Um, in the U.S., that's about 20% of the global usage when it comes to pesticides, just pesticides. That's kind of scary. But what's really concerning to me when I think about the health benefits of organics is that a lot of these pesticides that we use today are banned in other countries. 
right? And so we end up a little bit, you know, I hate to say it, but we're a little bit of the test dummies sometimes out here when it comes to certain foods and what we do. And it scares me a little bit. So when you talk about educating the consumers, can you share a little bit? I know you talked a little bit about the dietary guidelines, you kind of threw it in there, and I'd like to kind of just back up to it. You know, people are not going to do deep dives into scientific journals to do the why, right? People, we, we just, we live in a world where I think a retailer is, is asked to do heavy lifting for a consumer. Other people are just asked to do heavy lifting because we just have, you know, a small snippet sometimes of attention. So if you could, can you just touch maybe a little deeper on, you know, where you see educating consumers on the health benefits of organics and go? Sure. So um, one of the things that we did that prompted this recommendation is we spent a lot of time going through all the different websites. Yeah, not scientific journals, but websites like the Mayo Clinic, for example. Right. Um, that people might go to find health information. You know, what are the symptoms for a heart attack? And you type it in and that sort of thing to see what these most um, used websites said about organic. And the reality is that most of them said nothing. And the ones that did say something, they had conflicting information. So consumers are quite understandably confused. Right. Now, if I went back to the beginning of my journey with organic and, and working on that 1990 farm bill, there wasn't a lot of science then about health no. benefits of organic. People had, had intuition that it would be safer. But other than the pesticide residue issue, there wasn't much there. Now there's actually building scientific evidence that it's not just pesticide residues, hopefully mostly in absence of an organic, but also issues around uh, antioxidant capacity, um, you know, different, different issues around health that are very important to consumers. So what could the government do? Well, the government could provide a neutral clearinghouse for this kind of information at a minimum. And they could also advocate for it. So just alone um, in the SNAP program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, right. food stamps, there's $400 million that goes out to states on uh, educating people about healthy diets. Hey, one word on organic in that um, educational program might be a good thing. And so might be a great thing. Farmers markets to buy organic. No two ways about it. You know, you, you, you said something about your path, you know, and we, we have similar tenure of time playing around in this space. And, you know, when, when organics was starting, when it was nothing, when it was, you know, we were, fight, we were fighting for market share. We were trying to convince somebody to pull the PO that that apple would not have a worm in it. Um, you know, really, it came down to the 60 minute story on Alar that that blew everything up. It got all the attention, which caused it to kind of spiral. And from that point, I think it it dominoed into 1990 and those conversations started to increase, but you're absolutely right. It's amazing to me to think back to then and have that perspective to today and go, wow, we're just, just a sentence would be a big deal in, in some of that wording. And we can't get that yet. You know, which no. is what I love, which is why this platform's here. It's I'm, you know, you're not going to get, I'm going to get Tommy John surgery. I'm beating the drum so damn hard trying to do all this. And I love it. It's so great. So that being said, leads me to my next one of the 46 that I think is super important. And I'll say this and I say it all the time. I believe we're drastically underfunded in the NOP and on organics. No two ways about that. Um, and I think you probably agree with me that we need to increase federal research. And I'd like for you to touch on that a, a little bit. But, and also, I guess my question is the young kids would say, how much cheddar do we need 
in that bank account to really blow this thing out of the water. So kind of a two-part question. Kind of talk with us a little bit about the research side and, and, and funding it and then how much money do we really need realistically to really get this thing down the right path or, or continuing down the path. Yeah. Well, I'll start with a, a broad statement about research spending from a USDA, and that is over time, it's been in decline, organic or anything else, right? It's, right. it's just sad. And it's really when you're thinking about all the challenges that we face, particularly growing disruptions of, for growers with climate change and water scarcity and the wildfires and uh, well, the list goes on and on. People know the list. I'm not going to get focused on the problems, but mm -hmm. we should really be investing in research that bring, you know, bring about all kinds of innovations in the organic sector and beyond. So where are we on organic? Well, we certainly have done better in the last couple of farm bills have um, put some, some do re me into the bucket there. But as a basic talking point, what I'm saying to people is that right now in the United States, about 6% of food purchased is organic. Right. 82% um, of people may want to buy organic. It's not always there. It's mm -hmm. not always the right things that they want. Maybe there's a lot of carrots and a lot of apples, but there's no artichokes. And I'm just throwing these out. Sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But um, and also maybe out of the price range of some people. So there are a lot of issues there why it's not higher than 6%. We also import a lot of our fruits and vegetables and grains that are organic. So, but 6% to me seems like uh, a fair place to start. How about 6% of research dollars that USDA puts out on the street should be dedicated to organic, 6% of rural development funding, 6% of federal food procurement, 6% of marketing dollars, yabba dabba do. 6%, yeah. that would be a huge increase in organic. Now, maybe you could make a strong argument should be higher than that, but let's get there. Well, look, we got to we have to start somewhere to get someplace, right? I say if you don't start on the bottom rung of the ladder, you're never going to get to the top without wobbling, right? But you're you're exactly right, and it's hard to believe we're sitting here. And I'm look, you said six percent. I'm excited for six percent. Like like to your point, it's we have to start somewhere. You know, this is a very this is a serious business doing some serious things, and it needs serious attention. And that would be about four times more research dollars going to organic than currently. Four times, at six, at, right. So for perspective, four times, and it's only 6%. Yeah. So when I ask about the cheddar, 6% is good cheddar. I'll take 6%, mm -hmm. you know, but you know, you, you said something in the beginning of that, that I thought was, was interesting. And I think it's something that we talk about. A lot of people buy organics because maybe it's the only choice at the grocery store, to your point, maybe it's the only apple they have or the carrot they have, whatever it might be. So, you know, by default, they kind of get that, but you mentioned something about price. And I think this is where I find things get a little bit dangerous sometimes. And I get on this soapbox every once in a while is that retail, the mindset is always be, let's try to be the cheapest, right? That's our competitive edge. If we can be just a penny cheaper, we're the cheapest guy, which is dangerous when it comes to food because it makes us, it, it really does force a lot of bad decisions and it really does hurt the farmer because, you know, the amount of money and, and the USDA published some data on the amount of money getting back actually to the farmer out of every dollar is like nine cents these days. It's ridiculous. You know, and it's about, oh, you got to do, you know, you need better infrastructure. You need to be more efficient. You need to blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, I think we have an obligation that if, you know, to, to elevate the conversation about 
the why. Why is this important that it's a dollar, not 89 cents, which is really what we, you know, we're talking about really pennies at times. You're talking about 10, 20 cents difference, which I understand affects people, uh, their pocketbook. And I'm not trying to, 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 to take anything away from that. But does that 20 cents offset billions of dollars of healthcare issues? Those are the kind of things that I think when we think about research and, and stuff that I think is really important. So for me to hear 6% and my soapbox moment, it's like, I'm all about it because I think we could prove that that money is worth putting into our, to our bodies and worth increasing. Look, the more energy we put into it, the bigger we can help get this to scale. I mean, my goal in the very beginning all along was let's feed all the people we can all the best food possible every day. That was, you know, that was really the focal point when we sat down a long time ago trying to strategize where this industry might go from the produce sector. And that was one of the things I always remember. It's like, let's give people really good food and work to save the planet. So I appreciate, I appreciate that 6%. I'm on that. I'm going to get a t-shirt that says 6%. I'm going to start wearing it. Also, I'm going to send you one. Okay, cool. Well, people should really take a look at USDA's time series on uh, the food dollar. And you can see over time how much goes to the farmer of that food dollar. It's very depressing, actually. It is. And I've actually been in touch with the um, Economic Research Service experts that do that analysis to see if we could come up with a corresponding organic food dollar to figure out what percentage goes to the farmer. It's very complicated um, whether we pull that off or not. I don't know, but it's on the agenda. Yeah, good. Well, let, let's get 7% now. Now I want seven. I'm already past six. I'm on to seven now. Okay. So this, is, this is one that's on the list of, of 46 that I find to be, I think, shocks a lot of people when I bring it up to them because people just don't realize this. And it's around grade standards around uh, grass-fed animals. And I'm a big proponent of organic meat and, and grass-fed. Um, I think it tastes better. I just, you know, certain things do, certain things don't. This is one that I would stand up and say, this does to me. Um, but I share this with people and I kind of always get the same reaction and that they're shocked that the way beef is judged within the system versus grass-fed. Can you touch on that a little bit about kind of the, the difference and kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a hurdle, lack of a better word, that, that, that the grass-fed guys are facing right now in some ways? Sure. So um, this really comes from research that I'm doing with ranchers in Colorado and Arizona currently, and also from multiple year conversations I've had with Chef Dan Barber in Terrytown, New York, who I work closely with. So the situation is that our meat grading is really a one size fits all kind of approach. So uh, a rancher may raise an animal all the way from birth to um, slaughter on grass. Right. And another rancher may um, raise that animal partially on grass and then go to a feedlot, be fed a lot of grain, create a lot of methane gas, uh, then slaughter. Really different production methods, but when it comes to grading the meat, it's the same grade. So whether it's right. select choice prime, it's really primarily based on the marbling of fat in that meat. And a right. grain-fed animal is gonna have greater marbling which means it's gonna have a higher grade and therefore the rancher is gonna achieve a higher price. So the system sort of, um, it's sort of set up against a grass-fed rancher. Yeah. And what we're thinking about is that there needs to be grade standards that are 
fine tune for grass-fed animals. And someone like Chef Dan Barber in New York, very famous chef, he mm-hmm. also argues that we need to figure out ways to butcher and age grass-fed animals um, that's really attuned to what a grass-fed animal is instead of also doing that cookie cutter to a grain-fed animal. So I think that we have just um, scratched the surface of what can be done in terms of slaughter and processing and grading of grass-fed beef. And if we could figure that out, it would go a long way to help people who are doing some of the real sustainability innovations on the land. Well, no doubt. It is not one size fits all. And it is unfortunate because they're putting, you know, a lot of effort into these animals and they don't get the recognition for it. Again, part of that 6%, let's get that seven now. I'm sorry. We've already, we're going to seven. We agree. We I go hope, to seven. We'll be at 10 by the end of the conversation. Oh, we'll, we'll have this thing fully funded by the end of the conversation. We have our way. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate you sharing with that. I think it just blows people away when you tell them that story that it's like, you know, you, you're buying a piece of meat that quite frankly is unbelievably superior in a lot of ways, but they're not getting the credit for it. It's just really unfortunate. Again, we need to be talking about these positive costs of food and how we change this game. I want to talk a little bit um, about climate and what you guys have, have, have brought up about, you know, providing a seat at the table for developing, you know, uh, climate policy. You know, there's 17,000, approximately 17,000 uh, certified organic farms here in, this, in the United States. It's about five and a half million acres of ground. Um, and they certainly are qualified to get into the conversation about climate change because they are making a big positive change. I mean, just in what you brought up about the cows alone being on grass versus grain, you know, speaks to that. So can you touch a little bit about what you guys were kind of thinking about and where you were going with that? Sure. So a lot of practices on building soil have been really um, advanced by organic farmers. So we're hearing a lot of noise in the system about potentially paying farmers for carbon sequestration. Um, Different carbon markets are developing. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of those practices were pioneered by the organic guys. They deserve a seat at the table. when climate policy is being debated. And also, if we do end up paying farmers for carbon, I'm very concerned that a guy who's been an organic farmer for 30 years doing all the right things in terms of soil health has a high baseline and very little room for improvement, where Mm -hmm. a person who hasn't been doing anything good for the soil has a really great area for improvement and then may get financial support from the government or for private industry, which will further, um, you know, put the scales against the organic guys. So I need them in the policy mix so that they're heard and cared for and however these climate policies evolve. 100% 100% agree. You know, it, it, uh, in a lot of ways, it, it, it's almost kind of like the water wars, you know, in some ways that you see out here on the West Coast. It's like it's 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 you make more money selling your water to L.A. County than you do actually growing food to feed people. That's dangerous. And this is another example. And you know, not quite the same, but it's another example of that, that. If the ten, like I said earlier, if the 10 percent of the only voices that we hear, usually the other 90 suffer some way, somehow. And it's really important that we bring this, you know, this balance to the table to have these conversations. I think it's just so important 
because their needs need to, you know, go back to the grass fed, the exact same thing. Those needs need to be represented and talked about because we're not going to continue to drive positive costs in the food if we don't give them a runway to be successful, right? We've got to open up these doors. It's just so dangerous. You know, it really, really is. Um, one of the areas that, that I wanted to, to, to touch on quickly was, uh, and I guess I should have thrown it in when we were talking about the cows, but is the mandate on federal grazing laws, um, which I thought was really interesting. It, it, it was eye-opening to me, I, I, will, I will admit. I mean, the government, you know, the United States government owns 600, according to your report, about 640 million uh, acres. It's about 28% of all the land in the United States, which I didn't realize it was that much. That's a lot. You know, that's definitely a lot. Um, but one of the things that's happening on this federal ground is that these grounds really aren't being managed in an organic fashion. And then you have guys that are, you know, farmers, men and women, they're putting their cows on federal ground, which is very big grazing. Deal. I mean, it, it's gone on for a long time and will continue to go on for a long time, but it does affect them from remaining organic. And one of the things you cite is about the way they try to eradicate um, uh, prairie dogs. And the fact that what they use to do that and, and how that works. So can you talk a little bit about what you guys think and what we need to do to help change that? Because I think it'd be great that all federal ground was a, a bit safer for our families and for people that want to go hiking and they want to put their cows or any kind of animal on there. So there are people who spent their whole careers in federal grazing um, policies and how we use federal land. So. I am a novice here and always makes me anxious when I know that I probably need to know twice as much as, as I do. But here's the reality, especially now speaking from Arizona, most ranchers in my part of the world are grazing their animals at some point on uh, land that they do not own, whether it's uh, federal land or state land, uh, there's a lot of grazing that goes on on public lands. And they are not in control of how those lands are treated in large measure. So we would really like to have, as part of a national planning process, a real hard look at our grazing lands and what inputs are used and how we might be able to use alternatives that would allow for those ranchers to raise animals that would qualify as certified organic. Um, you know, it probably wouldn't be able to happen in all cases, no. but it also may take some more money. We also allow grazing at very, very cheap prices. And maybe that's a mistake too. Maybe the federal government should, now every rancher that I know is gonna be calling me on this one, but uh, maybe we need to raise the price per acre of grazed land in order to have a more sophisticated and perhaps more expensive uh, pest control eradication strategy. Well, they, look, they, they might call and they might be angry, but at the end of the day, what I just heard you said, say is that we need to have a conversation. We need to get to the table and realize that it, you know, it, while they might think it's working for them, is it actually working for the planet? Is it working for the greater good? Is it working for, you know, all these billions of people are coming, right? Including the aliens. I talk about them all the time. They're coming. I'll put my tinfoil hat on for a second. But you know, we're going to have to feed them. We're going to have to be smart about how we feed them. We cannot continue to feed them garbage food and suspect or, and expect us to to live longer, be healthier, and not have other other problems. So, to me, I appreciate you 
taking a little bit of a risk with what you said and, and being, but coming from, I think, the perspective of all of what we've talked about, whether it's the six, seven, now we're at eight, we're at 8% now, by the way, we already jumped up another one because we need the grazing money. Um, but, but saying that these things need to be talked about and they need to come to a place where we get to some solutions, that's one of the big problems. Sometimes we talk about things until we're blue in the face, but we never solve anything, right? You know, of course, we could also look in, at grazing fees in a way that we seem not to have been able to succeed in USDA programs. We should have um, strong payment limitations. You know, you can only get so much money. We should have limits on who gets those federal dollars. They have to be actively engaged in farming. Uh, you know, does Ted Turner need really low cost grazing fees? You know, we, we just need to um, put it under a microscope and think more deeply about it. Agreed, I, I wholeheartedly. Thank you, and thank you for, for sharing that. A um, couple of things you brought up, I want to kind of circle back around. One of which is, is I'm a big fan of, of ag technology and recognizing that, you know, as everybody approaches joining us on this planet, that um, technology is something that has got us to this point. Technology is allowing you and us, you and I to communicate from two separate states. Um, it's not going away. And I know that you're involved in ag technology. And one of the things I talk about all the time when it comes to ag tech, and it sometimes gets us in you know, people, I think, sometimes get afraid of it in some ways. You know, they, they treat it like an and or an or situation, right? Where I believe technology is an and, not an or. Um, I think it's dangerous if we try to pit it against each other. Can you share a little bit about what's exciting to you in ag technology right now and some of the things that, that perhaps um, you're looking at or, you know, something that's cool out there? Yeah, well, I, um, I do so as an interested party. So people mm -hmm. listening understand I'm a venture partner in a um, a firm that's based in Europe called Astronor, and I'm also an advisor to a Chicago-based firm called S2G Ventures. So I do look at a lot of these pitch decks these new entrants have about how ag tech's going to change the world, and I'm a grumpy old um, skeptic, and so that's my role in these firms. But I do find really cool things. So one of my favorite companies people may have heard about before is Appeal Sciences in mm -hmm. Santa Barbara, California, where the innovators, the founders of the firm figured out a way to extract um, something from the fruit itself and make a biofilm that right. uh, retards the ripening of the fruit, keeps it um, good to eat for at least twice as long. That's pretty exciting and a huge uh way to address issues of wasted food. I'm really interested in a firm called Magro, which is based in Ireland, where they figured out ways with magnetism to have whatever pesticide is sprayed to really uh, get to the crop because so much of it never really does. And it could reduce pesticide use by as much as 40%. Um, I'm really interested in some of the social aspects. So there's this company that's based in Berlin that's called InFarm, and they do mm -hmm. these big towers uh, in supermarkets where they're growing food. And I'm always excited, anything that connects consumers with how food is grown. There's a company in France that I really like called Insect, and they're rearing um, insects for use in uh, aquaculture feed and pet food and maybe one right. day for our food. And that is an alternative protein that makes a lot of sense to me from a sustainability viewpoint. So I do think that there are a lot of innovations on the horizon. 
That said, Todd, I think it's really important that we don't um, put all our hopes in the next innovation, the next technology to save us from where we're at today. We've got to change behaviors on so many different fronts. And those innovations are going to be additive and helpful, but they're not going to um, uh, do the hard work for us. Well, they're, they're part of the end, right? I think they're, they're a part of um, coming alongside what exists. Can we uplift that? But you're right. I, I, you know, we're not, we're never going to, we're never, we're always going to need soil farmers. We're always going to need farmers on a large scale. We're going to continue. We're going to need more and more and more. Um, again, I think it's just, an, it's a nice additive to be a part of. I think it's important that we need to embrace it and understand it. You know, I, I, I think if you'd have asked somebody, you know, 20, 25 years ago, whatever, would you, you know, the difference between a cell phone and a pay phone, you know, we're kind of at that place now, right? That, that uh, we're going to need to continue to change, but we need to be smart about how we change, right? We need to be thinking about, not, let's not worry about today's answer. Let's get tomorrow's answer also a part of the equation. And I think that's really important. I want to touch on something at your time, um, just, just briefly. I wanted to kind of go back to something that just popped into my feeble mind about your time at the USDA. I, I, you know, I've had the good fortune of being around the USDA a lot in my career. And the people there are really some unsung heroes. There's no two ways about it. People, I don't think people realize what a tough job that they have in a lot of ways. And, they, and you know, they're oftentimes criticized, not thanked. And I was a big believer in, in, in the thank factor because I think some of the folks there are just absolutely amazing. In that experience at USDA, what surprised you in any way uh, in regards to that? Because, you know, that's, that is almost a little bit of a kinship in some ways in that organization, I think, at least my perception of it. So I was just curious how you felt about that time there with, with your staff and with everybody that you got to meet. Well, I think when I was younger, I thought of USDA in a monolithic kind of way. USDA was the evil empire. You know, they never did good things. And my friend, Rich Rominger, the former um, commissioner, secretary of agriculture in California, former deputy secretary of agriculture at USDA for all of Clinton, uh, convinced me otherwise. Poor, we lost Rich uh, about a year ago. Sad. He was an incredible leader. Um, mm -hmm. and, a thoughtful champion of sustainability. Anyhow, USD is like 110,000 people. How could they yeah. all have the same mindset? So right. uh, what I learned when I first went to USDA at the end of Clinton is that you've got all kinds of people, all shapes and sizes. And so when I was working on the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food initiative, I said, I want people from every single agency but I, it's not necessarily the brass that I want, the top person or the top three people. I want people to join the every two week task force effort who really want to be there. And so I found people with great passion and energy. I found people who pulled all nighters to get the job done. They were anything other than the stereotypic bureaucrat. And that yeah. was just so exciting for me. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I know that kind of puts you on the spot a little bit, but I, I just, I feel, again, I just feel there's so many unsung heroes in, inside of our government that never get thanked. You know, they're not appointed. They're, they're lifelong people that have families that work hard every day to make this place a better, you know, a better place for all of us. And they just, they just don't get that pat on the back. So thank you for, thank you for sharing from your heart on that. I appreciate that. I really do. Um, just to kind of sum up, what do you think the biggest misconception is out there today about organic? 
This episode of Toddversations is brought to you by Vitalis Organic Seeds. Organic seed for organic food. Learn more about their commitment to organic seed production and R&D at usa.vitalisorganic.com. I think there's a, well, there's so many. <laughs> well, right. Yeah, I know. That's why, that's why I said biggest. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that people understand the complexity of organic. And I suppose some of us in marketing organic have played into that because it's a very complex systems approach to food production and people want to reduce it to it's no pesticides, it's no sewage sludge, it's no antibiotics, the no's, but they don't emphasize the yeses. It's the soil building, it's the animal welfare, it's the you know, all those, those other things, it's protecting biodiversity. So I wish that I had, I, and I haven't succeeded in all these years. I've been working on organic for more than 30 years. I haven't found a way to do the elevator speech in organic that really does it justice. Yeah. So that, that adds to the misperceptions. I also think that there is this notion that only wealthy people buy organic and, um, you know, I worked for Senator Patrick Leahy from Vermont for many years, and I grew up um, just 10 minutes from the Vermont border in Western Massachusetts. And, you know, if you said to people up where I'm from that, you know, that uh, people who are low income don't buy organic, um, you would get a lot of hate mail because that's in that that people react, do you think I don't care about my kids? That I don't know what's going on. And so this notion that um, like organic is attached to a particular economic class doesn't hold water. Um, It's all across the economic spectrum that people are buying organic. And when people are budget constrained, I always refer them to environmental working groups uh, effort on the clean 15 and the dirty dozen to help orient people in terms of most important organic buys if you're on a constrained budget. But again, people are buying organic um, in every state of this country mm-hmm. at every economic level. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, and I, I used to have a different answer uh, than I do today to that question. And because somebody asked me the question, it's like, well, no, what do you think it is? And my answer now is that organic can feed the world. That's the answer to the question in my mind. That's the one that I go with now. It's like, you know, I think that's the biggest people. Oh, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's like, well, yeah, you can't. You can't. You're just going to have to want to. Right. And I think the more we keep these conversations moving and the more we keep these conversations uplifted about the why we should. I hopefully we'll get there because now we're at nine percent. So we've jumped. I just add another percent. Like We're going to get to 10 by the end. I told you we were. If it was up to us, we would have written a check already. We'd be good to go. I love it. You know, you're an extremely inspirational person. You have done, you know, you've done some big things and you've been a part of a lot of really big things. And I know that, that, you know, we have to be fed in what we do, right? We have to, whether it's emotionally, spiritually, whatever it is, like food as well. But, you know, so who inspires you? Who's somebody that's been in your life that, that has really made a big impact and, and is, is, it has helped you? Oh, well, there's so many people. <laughs> well, um, farmers do. I've got my, you can't see, I've got a Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food t-shirt on. Love it. And so I'm always 
telling my students who are mainly uh, studying policy that we should never construct policy absent really important conversations with people who are on the land doing the job. You may not all agree at the end of the day, but you better darn well be informed by the people who know best. Um, I had a professor in college, James McGregor Burns, who is a leadership scholar and taught me a lot about leadership in terms of um, uh, really connecting with people and, and leadership is about lifting other people's voices, not just hearing yourself Absolutely. in the echo chamber. 100%. I had um, in graduate school, I had Barbara Jordan as a professor, the Congresswoman from Texas, some of the older crowd may remember from Richard Nixon's impeachment trial. Right. Uh, she's uh, um, no longer with us, but an incredible um, force for ethics and good governance. Um, I mean, today I'm really incredibly uh, taken with Jim McGovern, the congressman from Western Massachusetts, who's uh, the foremost champion of SNAP in Congress, Rosa DeLora, the chair of our House Appropriations Committee. She's fierce. Pat Leahy, my old boss, John Tester, our organic farmer from uh, Montana, Shelley Pingree in the House from Maine. I mean, there are a lot of people who inspire my work. And I will tell you, um, I'm not teaching on this particular day that we're recording, but I'm in the classroom an awful lot. And there's hardly a time when I don't learn something from my students. Mm. When I went to be deputy secretary, I always said I was a much better deputy because I had been teaching at Tufts at the graduate school level for eight years. And as much as I thought I'd know something prepping for class, you know, there'd be that one student ask you a zinger of a question. You have to go and do more homework. So right. um, it's a, it's a whole web of people and uh, and I'm really grateful. There's hardly anything that I can point to in my life that's just my own work. It's all a collective enterprise. I love it. That's such a beautiful answer. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it like that. And and uh, it's it's so important to give back, like you talked about, and uplift. I mean, it's just those are such key words and what people do. You know, from a mentorship, it's about being involved in people's lives, right? In a meaning, in a meaningful way. And I think that's really great. Um, one final, well, couple, quickly, one other question I didn't get to and I wanted to ask you, how was it being Time Magazine's most influential person when you got elected? What was that What was that phone call like? Was it like a Tuesday at 345 they called you and it's like, hey, by the way, you made the list or that had, a, that had to be quite humbling. Well, they did call my office and I told my staff not to return the call, that they were just looking to out, <laughs> with some jokester looking to out people in Washington with big heads. <laughs> thought they were that important um but time um persisted and we finally did take the call and it was pretty amazing i mean it was awesome. odd i was on the time magazine page next to steve jobs as a thinker now everyone knows who jo steve jobs is nobody knows who kathleen merrigan is but again i think it was a recognition of the issues that i've worked on in terms of sustainable agriculture organic agriculture and then coming to the main stage. It was much right. more about that than it was about me. But I did right. get to go to a fancy red carpet affair in New York City. And I would expect. 
I was right behind Betty White and Sarah Palin. And at one point in the night, I was dancing aside Taylor Swift um, to the music of Prince. Now that's cool. That's pretty cool. I, did you get a picture with Betty White? Because I'm thinking that's the best one you dropped so far. No, I did not. I did. Okay. Um, I did take a picture with uh, Taylor Swift and got her autograph for my teenage daughter. Which well, that's the height for the for the evening. That was very way, way to score as a mom. But I'm just saying the Betty White thing. I got to give I got to give the props to Betty White. No, fan. I'm just saying Taylor Swift and eh, eh, whatever. Anyway, I love it. All right, let's have a little bit of fun here as we wrap ourselves up. We, we do something called TLC Trivia. We have a little bit of fun with it on here just to get people. Oh, it's easy. We're not going to hurt you that bad. It won't be that bad. Here, here's how easy it is. Ready? Here's for, and you're playing for cash and prizes. So you get these right. You get these right. This is what gets us to 10%. Okay. Fair enough. You, look what you're playing for. You're playing for billions now. I love it. If you could have dinner with anybody on the planet, who would you pick? Well, right now it would be um, President Biden. I'd like to get in his head. Well, you got 46 things to talk about, plus another probably 150. What would you have for dinner, by the way? I would have Dan Barber's parsnip steak. It's uh, not a steak. It's made from parsnip, but it has a really meaty taste. And it's a perfect example of where we need to go as a planet. And I would, as a side, have his rotational um, 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 risotto. Really, it was from a, a, a farm, you know, in the concept of having many crops in a, a rotation that's building soil health. So that's what love we it. have. All right. That's fair. I love that. That's a great answer. Who was your favorite teacher when you were younger? You remember? Or who um, inspired you as a teacher? Well, I would, I would put James McGregor Burns in college. If it's younger than that, uh, it would probably be Richard Russo, who was a journalism English professor when I was in high school. And we did the daily, or not daily, the, the school newspaper didn't come out daily, but we did the newspaper together. I love it. All right. What's the biggest island in the world? Hmm. I don't know. I guess well, so it's I'll give you, Australia. We're, we're, no, we're playing, for, we're, playing for, we're playing for percentage points here. So I'll give you a hint. Starts with the word green. Oh, <laughs> Greenland and you got we're so far we're three for three here's the last one this one's easy and it's because you were talking about Brussels earlier all right here, this one's easy mashed potatoes or french fries mm. Mm. tough call mashed potatoes well, okay there you go you have to you're, I have to say you're the first mashed potato person I wow. love it though good mashed potatoes around but I brought it's interesting because you were, we were talking earlier about um Brussels a little bit. And, you know, mashed potatoes came from Belgium in 1680, by the way. A bit of trivia. So you learn something. You learn something at conversation. But the home of potatoes is really Peru. Genetic. Indeed. Indeed. But they correct. But according according to, you know, the, the Google, which, you know, is 100 percent right. 1680 <laughs> Belgium. That's all I got. I was yeah. just trying to throw a little something. It's just a little something, something on the backside of that. Nice. You have been you have been so generous with your time and your openness and your candor and spending time on this crazy broadcast with me. And it's obviously it's it's great to see you and hang out a little bit again. And, and uh, I, I so appreciate you as a person. I appreciate your heart. I appreciate um, what you've done for this industry. Uh, I disagree when when you say people don't know who you are. You are a baller out here. People know who you are. You have you carry a very big stick. And you have such a soft heart and you're just such a great person to be around when you're infectious because of your energy that you give back to 
not only this industry, but our country as well. So um, I have one final question I want to throw at you, though, if, if you wouldn't mind. Um, we've talked about reflection and taking paths and, you know, kind of how life takes us and stuff. And, you know, I think our path is often shaped by good things and bad things, et cetera. And, and as I said earlier and, and a couple of times, in fact, I'm a big believer in, in mentoring and giving back and, and which is really why I love what I'm doing with this platform is that opportunity to give back and to put voices behind things. And I think that part of being a mentor is being meaningful uh, in people's lives. Right. I think that's how we need to start looking at moving the ball forward is, is, is to start to invest in you know, ideas. But the people behind the ideas are just as important. And I think that's something that we can work on. So when you're in a moment of reflection about things like this and where your career is taking you and what you've done, what's something you wish, you know, 22 year old, 24 year old um, Kathleen would have heard? Some advice or some some knowledge? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. So people always ask me about my career journey and young people, and they want to know how they can achieve what I've achieved. And I always tell them that with hindsight, I see a pattern. Um, but when I was in the midst of it, it seemed pretty chaotic and just surprising. So I don't think there's magic there. I think that you have to know who you are and you have to stay true to your values and your ethics right. and you have to face tough issues with courage those would be my parting words Todd. i love it that's a great place to end it's a great place to stop folks like i told you this is a special one um this is worth sharing this is worth uh, googling this is worth you reading you know, we touched on eight, however many we touched on today. There's a whole bunch more. There's 46 plus another 46, probably another 46. We've raised, we've literally have got our budget up to 10% now for organic research. So congratulations, Kathleen, on doing that. That was amazing work on this broadcast to be able to get that much money funded for organic research. Unbelievable. That's going to be the lead post that we're going to run with this thing that we just refunded the government for organic research. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for hanging out. You mean the world to me. This time's meant the world to me. Don't stop. Don't let them get to you. Keep grinding. Keep doing what you're doing because you're winning the day. And I appreciate you. And I know a lot of people listening feel the exact same way. And um, thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. And good luck with this platform. Thank we you. I appreciate have to it. learn more. We do. And that's why we're here. Thanks, everybody, for watching. We really do appreciate it. Take care. Remember, go inspire somebody today. It's really important. Thanks again. Well, folks, thanks for hanging out with uh, me and Kathleen. I can't add to anything what you said. She is unbelievable. And uh, we certainly appreciate her taking her time out of her busy world to hang out and uh, share with you a little bit about some things that you probably didn't even know about and hopefully uh, will inspire you to do something about so thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, check us out on all of our social media sites, uh, TLC underscore Todd Versations, all over LinkedIn. Uh, the audio version is available on all the podcast channels around the globe uh, and as well as our YouTube page. So you can see the actual video of her being here. So thank you all very, very much. Uh, appreciate you. And remember, go inspire somebody today. It's super important. Thanks a lot. Take care.